James, how are you this morning? Hey, I'm well, thanks, Duncan. Well rested. How are you? I'm not well rested. I'm a man baby, man child who 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 it wants to go back to sleep. Um, but we'll get there. Um, so today we were, I thought we would talk about um, some thoughts which which we have, um, which I'm sure I will change my mind about. <laughs> As they say, the only constant is change. Um, about how inheritable intelligence is. Um, mm. And we'll put in um, some podcasts um, for you to have a listen to, one from Lex Fridman and one from Sam Harris. Um, but I thought I'd basically start off with the premise, um, which is that some people think there's this thing called G, which is stands for general intelligence, and that this is heritable. Um, which means, and then there's different things out there that 50 to 80%, some of them will say, of the general intelligence, which is effectively a measure of, you know, the different types of intelligence, is heritable from, um, say, your parents. Um, I personally don't feel this is the case, and I feel that the evidence um, doesn't support this. And I'll go through a, a sort of high-level <laughs> explanation of that, but that's the sort of premise uh, of this. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd recommend listening to this podcast, which we'll put into the description, um, perhaps first. Um, and then you can have a listen to us crap on. What are your <laughs> any thoughts, James? Yeah, so I think it's really helpful to set the stage here. Um, and I think there are three key words that are going to be uh, coming up throughout this entire discussion. And those words for me are intelligence, IQ, and G factor. So it would probably help. Like, what? <laughs> um, this is it's a real high round. It's a real high round <laughs> stuff coming here. It is great. It's just great. I'm trying to think of like ways you can like define intelligence. And one of the things, like as a child, when you're growing up in the schoolyard, that you use as a measure of intelligence is your ability to have quick, witty comebacks. Oh, yeah. Right? And it just like devolved down to the point where you've run out of things to say and you can just come up with like your mother or like, yeah, yeah well, your face. Yeah. <laughs> but like coming back on, um, on point. So I think everyone can have a wild guess of what we mean when we say intelligence, but how it differentiates from IQ and G factor might be helpful here. Um, so I'll take a wild swing at it and with we'll like, the definitions that people use out and then we can talk hmm. yeah so, so like a broad definition of intelligence that i picked up is the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skills so we can go deeper than that if we want to but i'll just leave that there for the time being iq is a score it's a standardized score on a set on a test that measures a series of various forms of intelligence and they use that as a standardized measure to try and discern one level of intelligence. They often cite it is, you know, an abstraction. It is not an absolute, it is not immutable, but it's just one form of measurement on and in, on people's intelligence. So that's my understanding of IQ. And then G factor is that if you take the sum correlation of a series of tests, so if you take 12 different kinds of tests, and he said you can even use playing poker as a form of test. There is a correlation between one's ability to score on each of those tests, and he calls that the G factor. Would that be a, a fair definition in your mind, Doug? Yeah, so look, um, of these tests and the people that say this, um, normally they're using IQ tests as the proxy for intelligence, and sometimes mm. SAT tests. So I think the first thing that you need to do is understand these tests. Um, and so as an example, there is a correlation between income and IQ. Uh, and the main premise here, if you want to get to this from these people is, is this, are they leading correlation? So for instance, does higher IQ lead to higher income or does higher income lead to higher IQ uh, mm -hmm. or is it causation? Um, and so the most common IQ test, I'm going to mispronounce this. Wetzler Adult IQ Scale. Um, and so we'll put the link of this again into the um, podcast um, things. You can have a look at it. 
Um, so anyways, um, the point here is that this is a battery of different tests and they've gone through different versions of it. But now there are sort of 10 subtests and they put them into different categories. So there's verbal comprehensive stuff, perceptual reasoning, working memory index, processing speed index. Um, and so they've got the different things here, um, but I think it actually a sort of an earlier version <laughs> might be this. Uh, so um, they've got these 10 tests that they, they do through this um, IQ test. Um, and you should go and, for instance, we'll put a link to this, go and do one of these IQ tests because you probably haven't, if you're anything like me, done one in like, I think we did some at school when I, just for fun, it wasn't school putting them, just as a kind of like, oh, I wonder what I get, you know? <laughs> um, okay, and so the first thing to me is, is the following. Um, in the last 80 years, um, put a link to this too, IQ tests have gone up two standard deviations, right? So the average person is two standard deviations higher than they were. Um, and so what this means is if you are not, you know, remembering bell curves and other things that you had done from, from university or from, from school, that the person, the average person today would have been in the 97.5th um, percentile of 80 years ago, right? And so that means if there's a correlation, as um, people point out from the data, and I think that's not unreasonable conclusion, that they would have been in the 97th percentile of earning, right? Um, so, it's like, so can everyone on average have gotten two standard deviations smarter? Um, or for instance, are these tests not, you know, something you can, you know, inheritable and something you can learn or prep for and that the average person today versus 80 years ago has more exposure to language, words, you know, reading, phones, you know, more exposure to numbers, you know, the, the, the amount of knowledge worker jobs has gone up massively. So as an example, in 1900, I think 30% of jobs were farmers and 40% were factory workers. So not very high, you know, and in Australia, it's 12% factory workers and 1.3% farmers. So that the amount of knowledge workers, as an example, has gone up massively. So to me, um, and we'll get back to this, the main way they measure intelligence is this thing they call G, which is a generalized um, intelligence thing. And that is normally done through IQ. So you need to understand what an IQ test is first to start to understand the premise of these things before going any deeper. So, so what I want to try and like get to uh, as quickly as possible is where we're trying to make the distinction between what is heritable and what is not, what is uh, not inheritable. And like when you say we've gone up two standard deviations over 80 years, like that makes a lot of sense when I hear you say that, like our education system has acquired a lot of new knowledge where, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants because of all of the information and knowledge that's been acquired over the last 80 years is significant. Um, been flat for like I... 20 or 30. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, um, is it, as in the, there are different tests out there. So other tests yeah. out like PISA or TIMS or PEARLS or NAPLAN. Um, those, so those are different tests. And I think those are actually much better ways to see things. So yeah. but by IQ alone, we have gone up. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's a couple of things. One, I think when people talk about IQ in the academic world, they make, I think, two very common concessions. One is that nobody considers IQ immutable. Like, I don't think that's fair, James. So that's a very strong statement, first of all. Right. Okay, okay. the general consensus but is that. Point, no, point blank, these people that will share these things from Lex Fridman um, and as believe it is heritable and as such immutable. And that according to the studies that they've been put forward, 50 to 80%. So it's not like 100%, but well, that's the point 80% I was is a, a large portion. And I'm yep. purporting forward um, that not only is it not 50 to 80%, it's, it's more like 0%. And that's, that's like a, a, a difference, like a significantly different perspective. And I think yeah. you need to look at the data that they have to support their perspective. And then I'm going to put forward a different set of, or a different interpretation of the data. So we're talking about the same data. I'm not like their data is wrong. They, their studies, you know, blah, blah. Like, but I believe you can have a fundamentally different interpretation. Yeah. Duggan has some alternate facts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, what I'm, what I was trying to, the word I was trying to find is like this point around there is a percentage of inheritability around intelligence, and 
I haven't heard anyone say it's 100% genetics. Um, and so with that in mind, the whole concept of we have an education system where we can Im improve people's intelligence by way of quality of education also seems to be something that is fairly mainstream, I would say. So this idea that you can improve your intelligence, whether it's through several generations or whether it's through your own individual uh, environmental factors, I think you and I can agree on. So what I think would be really useful, this, this, this premise that you have, Duncan, that is 0% inheritable, I'd be really keen to understand more on your thoughts around that. Yeah, so, so there's like a spectrum where in one end, intelligence is heritable, and the other end, intelligence is built. And I'm going to stop using that word intelligence because to me, intelligence comes with fixed mindset, um, as in you're born good at math or bad at math, um, whereas growth mindset, you are able to grow your things. And I know that in some of the academic research, the growth mindset isn't necessarily showing. So if you teach people to have a growth mindset, it doesn't necessarily mean they can grow their minds. But I think that, again, that data um, doesn't necessarily point out what's happening. So one model, um, you know, you're born good or bad at something. And the other end, so, and this is be what, what I would say that, you know, people from Stanford, which we created like, you know, growth mindset and like Joe Bowler, and I understand that there is, um, some controversy around the way Bobble thinks about maths. Um, and um, I personally do have some empathy with what she says, and I don't feel that it is against, you know, uh, you know, work, uh, sort of the working memory sort of side of things. But anyways, um, <clears throat> so what I would say, this is my paraphrasing Bobble, there is 5% of people with a biological starting point that is hard to overcome. So for instance, hardcore dyslexia, hardcore ASD. But that for the other 95%, your starting point is effectively irrelevant versus the upgrades that you do. And your mind, your mental abilities are the sum of the upgrades that you have done. So the quantity times quality of the upgrades. So I would say that your mental abilities, not your intelligence, because mental abilities sounds much more like I've built my abilities, right? And so to me, I think honestly that smart and dumb or intelligence are fixed mindset and lock people into this way of thinking. So I grew up with the standard, what I would consider to be indoctrinational view that you know you're good or bad at something and that you can move it a little bit so you're born you know if you do extra work but it's only a little bit and so as an example i was better at math and science but worse at english and humanities and it would have been much better if i was better at english and humanities and math and science but as good better as, at least i was good at one thing you know so thank you all about that you know <laughs> and i could work really hard on say the english and humanities side of things but it wouldn't necessarily allow, I mean, it was kind of like not possible for me to be the best at that or really, really good at it. Like, no matter what, I'd just be toiling away and I might be at average, you know? Um, and so it's like, ah, okay, well, school of thought one, it's all, you know, born. And school of thought two, it's all built. Um, and I believe when you look through the data that you see that it's built. Um, and so there's plenty of things. Like if you have a good teacher in one year, they can move the outcomes by one standard deviation. And these are things that are like a real world useful, not like IQ test, even though you could hack an IQ test. So you move you one standard deviation on IQ test by test prepping for that thing, um, in my opinion. But I don't personally feel there's a strong correlation between the way they measure intelligence on IQ and actually what is useful to operate in the 21st century world, right? And I'm not talking about 21st century skills. Yeah, I'm talking about like having a job today, you know? Um, so then it's like, ah, okay. Um, well, your mind is some of the upgrades um, and how do you sort of think about these things? I'm going I'm to pause there because I've been going for quite a while, James. Yeah. yeah, so like nothing you're saying there I think is too controversial. Though. I think where it really... I don't know if it is because like point blank, you listen to these podcasts and point blank, a lot of people say, so I would say the standard view in the West is that there is a... You're, 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 is that person smart? Oh yeah, they're really smart. Oh no, they're not so smart. You know, seriously. That, that, that is yeah. said. So to me, I believe that it is thoughts that a significant portion is inheritable yeah, or heritable. Yeah, so I, I, I get that. And, you know, the, the conventional way of thinking that people are just a certain way because people don't have, um, you know, the creativity to think about, well, how did they actually, what did they do to get to that point? But for me, I want to try and make the distinction between there is a combination of heritable and, um, and cultural factors versus it's all cultural. 
So you gave the exception, like the 5% of the populations who do have genetic defects, and it's very, very, very difficult to overcome that disadvantage. Um, but the premise from there is everyone else is basically can be limitless in your ability to build cognitive ability. If we're, if we're not going to use the word intelligence, Duncan. Mental abilities. Uh, mental abilities. Yeah. Right? So I guess what I want to try and tease out of you is can can both not be true? Can there not be? And I'm I'm really just trying to make sure that we challenge our thinking here. We're, we want to be in the scientific rung of the ladder. My question is, is there not something where people have a set start point? So you might start with 100 centimetres, I might start with 90 centimetres. Now, the upper limit is, no, not set, it's limitless, but it would still lend itself to suggest that two people can start with two different set points. But then if, the, if person A works harder than person B, it doesn't really matter what the set point was, they can still overcome that to a very large degree. Mm. Yeah, so I think what I said is that the starting point is effectively irrelevant versus the upgrades you've done. So, right. but they can't necessarily. Um, so, so this is the next thing I wanted to talk about. Um, up, you know, upgrades is quantity times quality. You can measure mm -hmm. quantity very easily. Quality is harder, and quality does matter. So, for yeah. instance, you can see a quality teacher normally moves. So, so there are tests that I think do give a good reflection of whether somebody has made progress. I'm not saying they're perfect, but I do think they're solid. So the ones that they normally use for this G thing are things like IQ, SAT. I don't think they're good. Um, tests that I think do give a good reflection would be something like, and this is somewhat controversial, you know, PISA, NAPLAN, the end of school, you know, tests like VCE in Victoria, HSC, A-levels in the UK, um, the New York state tests for maths as an example. I think they're, they're pretty solid in most of the, the state tests for the, um, you know, different uh, states in the US are solid. So there are some tests. So as a, as a can a teacher make a big difference on them? So, yeah. <laughs> so you have like a really good teacher. They will move their class on average one standard deviation on those tests. So this is like, like oh, okay, so there's some tests are good and some tests are bad. I'm like, yes. So what, what makes a good test? Well, it depends. There's not one test that covers everything, but the tests are normally very, very hard to prep for. Uh, and what that means is there are normally four different strategies of things that people do. One is that they just make the content more difficult. So if you talk about maths in year seven, you put in calculus. Normally that's done in like say year 10 or year nine, um, but you're doing it in year seven, right? Another one is you just go at speed. So you need to put more questions, you run out of time. Um, another one is you just do trickiness. So that's kind of part of what SAT is or, or IQ is. They, they put things in sort of strange ways. And the other one is you go at non-familiarity. So it's concepts you should know like fractions but put into a circumstance that you have not seen before. So if you're, you know, for instance, the percentage of questions that you see, if it's a very, very similar question to what you've seen before, you can do it through memorization, right? You don't really understand what you're doing. You can just copy and paste the answer that you had before. But if it's something that's materially new, that you have to recall and transfer and apply it into a new circumstance, then your ability to hack or prep for the test isn't good, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so to me, the best tests employ this, um, and they're getting slightly off here. But the point I wanted to get to is, so these tests can be useful, you can move massively. Um, so if you had, for instance, somehow won the lottery of a school um, and you got the best teacher for, for each of those subjects in say high school, your net outcome, and I think you all know this because you've all had hopefully a great teacher and you learned a crap ton, right? And you've all had, unfortunately, probably a bad teacher and you didn't learn much at all, right? And so the compound outcome of this, that's quality, but also part of it, good teachers get quantity too, because they'll get you to, you know, they help with motivation, they build relationships, they make things more, you know, interesting and relevant to you. So anyways, mm. um, the your mental abilities is the, some of the upgrades, the upgrades are the quantity times quality. So one of the mm. first things we're going to put forward is there is hardcore evidence that good teachers make a big difference. And also not just like in academic research, you um, likely have experienced a great teacher and an awful teacher and have personally felt the difference in learning that can occur. Yeah, so um, I want to keep pressing on this because I think it's really important that we can get to um, the crux of where we, th we see this kind of like starting to spray because, again, everything I'm hearing you say feels like 
if you if you you know if you if you look close enough, it's quite conventional. Like I don't think it's controversial to say that there are some schools that are better than others. Uh, there are schools that have better results as a general uh, score over the entire population than others. I think it's not too absurd to suggest that there are people who will be willing to pay large sums of money to send their children to these schools because the expectation is that they will perform better on an academic level, which is, I would say, one form of um, uh, reasoning for intelligence because they understand explicitly that the quality of teaching at this school, the quality of resources at this school, the quality of um, you know, applications at this school are materially better than, let's just say, the average. So I think people do understand that you can set your child or yourself or whoever up in such a way so that they have the best access to resources that ensure they get quality education. And a quality education can you know, equal a higher score on one of these, uh, you know, aptitude tests. One example you gave was HSD or VCE. So all of these ideas around, well, you know, there are cultural aspects or the nurturing aspects that can, like, have limitless potential to upscale someone's cognitive, sorry, mental ability. Uh, I think is there, and I think that is also. I don't want to say common knowledge, but I want to say like it's not controversial. But what I really want to understand and make sure I understand is that what I heard you say is that it's zero percent inheritable. And what I think you're actually saying is you're not held back from your set point in what you inherited. You have from where you start limitless potential. So I don't think that's necessarily it's zero percent inheritable. I think it's Something like you have a set point, but your your upper limit is zero. Because you have the ability through quality of education, through learning, through nurturing applications to up-level your mental ability. Would that be a good summary? Not partially. So, like, again, I think I guess part of the question is, like, your mental abilities are the sum of the upgrades you've done, which is quantity times quality. Um, yep. So they say that, like, again, you know, the for 95% of people... Um, you know, your starting point is effectively irrelevant. And also that 5% of people, it starts to become, you know, an impediment and it casts, you know, really, it's like the 0.1% of the people that have got the really worst versions of like dyslexia as an example. Um, but that's not, it's not like, you know, 5%. So then the next thing is like, okay, well, quality could better. And I'll just give you some examples um, that, you know, a good teacher, but also obviously good parents. <laughs> um, but the other one is quantity, right? Mm. Quantity matters. Um, and there are many tests on this, so many studies. Um, there are differences in cultural outcomes. And I think a lot of people have probably seen East Asian people uh, coming over from whatever it is, China, India, you know, Korea, um, and they work harder, <laughs> homework, right? And on average, they get better outcomes. Um, and this is another one. So there is a strong correlation, um, and I'll put a link to this, between the income of parents. Um, most of these studies are from the US, um, but they're also, you know, in Australia as an example. So the amount of homework done, and this is easily measurable by income of people who have higher is for their kids is higher. There's a strong correlation. So the, the, you got top one percent; those kids do more homework on average than kids in, that are parents in the ten percent, and then the kids that are parents in the fiftieth percent. Um, so the quantity of upgrades that is being done is significantly more. So in high school, from one of these tests, we're talking about for the average top. So this is the top fifty percent. We're doing sixty minutes. And for the bottom half, it's 40, right? But that's like literally the halves. So that's kind of like the 75th percentile versus the 25th percentile. And if you go up to the 1th percentile, down to the you know 99th percentile, it's much, much bigger gap, right? Um, and so what happens in these schools is also a compounding effect of this. I've been lucky or fortunate to go to I mean, more than 100 schools from the most you know fancy to the least fancy, literally from the top 1% income to the bottom 1% income. <laughs> um, and there is not much learning going on in the low-income schools in many cases. Now, if there's a very good teacher, they can get behavior management and relationships and motivation built in students, as an example. Um, whereas in the top 1%, it's like 99% of class time is learning. And if you, you don't want to learn, you just sit there quietly and you kind of tune out a little bit, right? Whereas you might have 
10% of the time, class time learning in the worst schools. It's anarchy, right? So it's not just that they're doing much more homework. It's also that the time at school, in class, there is much more learning being done. And so the compound effect of you doing, so for instance, it's not unreasonable. So if we're talking about this, so do like, say, triple the amount of homework a day for the top, you know, 10% and the bottom 10%, and then also in class, triple the amount of learning, yeah, no problem, right? So if you're doing all else equal, triple the amount of learning on maths, on, you know, ELA in, in, in the US, or, you know, English, you know, science. Every year for 12 years, the cumulative outcome is very large. So as an example, if I take NAPLAN, in year three where it starts, the top quartile versus the bottom quartile are about one year apart. This is not even getting to the top 1%. This is, you know, the, the quartiles. And in year nine, it's three years, right? And they're like, mm -hmm. oh, education's failing. And I'm like, actually, from my experience, the quality of the teachers in the top schools isn't necessarily better than the quality of the teachers in the worst schools. Most teachers, if you want to be rich, you're not normally going into teaching, right? They're there <laughs> to help. And they, uh, many of them have got the most, you know, upstanding approach and are beautiful. And so you can often have, you know, just as good, if not better teachers in bad schools. But if they're fighting a massive quantity gap, the quality of the teaching, so in my opinion, the quality on average is average. So, so you know, you're not necessarily getting better <laughs> at a very, very, you know, fancy school than a very, very bad school from a quality perspective. There are great yeah. teachers only at good schools and bad schools. So anyways, I believe, and there are people out there and I think you sort of know this. Like if you work harder at a subject, you do better, right? So to me, um, the single largest determinant, quality obviously matters, is quantity. And you can measure this. So on average, for instance, people in a high, you know, top quartile have a high IQ, right? But also on average, they've done a lot more quantity. Mm. And I think that that explains the entire difference. Yeah. Which is, to me, is that, ah. Oh, so if they were all doing the same quantity and they all have the same quality, then it's like, okay, well, if there's an IQ difference or if, I, mean, I don't like IQ, but if there was a test difference on, for instance, PISA, then I'd be like, ah, oh, that, that, that's interesting. But if there is a massive quantity difference, like massive, and there is also a outcome difference on, you know, IQ, I'm like, oh, well, maybe the quantity, because that's not born, the quantity is built, right, um, has something to do with it. Yeah, so one of the ways I use this to explain to like my children is you, you think of the performance and then you try to understand how much practice went into that performance. Hmm. So when well, they look at someone like, you know, dancing on a stage, the first thing they'll say is like, wow, they're an amazing dancer. I wish I could dance like that. And to which I say, well, you know, irrespective of, you know, how good of a dancer they are, I would suggest looking into how many hours of practice they spent before they got to something that good. Or this person's a really good piano player. Like I'm pretty sure they didn't come out of the room playing the piano. <laughs> and the the idea is even in something like your you know your academic pursuits at school, there's performance and then there's practice. And I think of something like homework as practice. And it's just a, a one simple arbitration is the more you practice, the better the performance. And so if you want to do really well in something, whether it's a musical instrument or your test scores at school, you just need to increase the practice hours. And so this is kind of like something where it's helping understand, well, you're not just a naturally a good piano player. You're not just naturally a good dancer. It's how good do you want to be correlates highly to how many hours of practice you want to put into something to get better at it. Yep. Definitely. So, so this is the next part. Like, so you look at the studies through this further. As an example, yeah, wealthy kids do more than poorer kids. And so it's funny. So, like, the standard left thing is like wealthy people are entitled. And I'm not saying that necessarily, but if you want to take this one objective measure, amount of homework done, the least entitled people from the amount of homework they do on average are the kids of the wealthiest people. And the most entitled people are the poor people who don't do the homework is like, oh, that's really weird. But also, wait for this, on average, girls do more homework than boys because they're more conscientious on average. And I don't think this is some sort of giant, you know, thing. you go to an all-girls school and the amount of, you know, in class, you know, paying attention is very different to, you know, their brothers or whatever, they go to an all-boys school and it's very different. And so again, it's like, on average, girls are doing better academically. And it's like, well, are girls 
biologically better than boys from a mental perspective like perhaps that's one that's one conclusion right and it's like no of course not <laughs> no but like you know or, or it's like but like at the base level like what what i think the, the argument of these people starts to fall apart very quickly it's like if you hold everything else the same and there are differences then we start interesting but if you're like okay well mental abilities does quantity matter yeah does quality matter yeah okay well quality is hard to measure one and also very interesting but quantity is super easy to measure <laughs> super easy, right? and the quantity differences are stark af we're not talking about one percent difference we're talking about multiples right and this is compounded over a decade right um and so it's like oh well this becomes very very difficult so as an example another one is this you know people normally like they give their children an emotional inheritance and they give their children an intellectual inheritance so as an example if you're very anxious often your children are anxious but then there are the sort of major mental disciplines. This is an oversimplification. There's literacy, numeracy, strategy, sport, social, right? And so if you really love reading, you read with your kids all the time. Some kids go into school uh, and they've read 10 books, 20 books. Other kids go in holding the book upside down, right? Maths is, mini, Lego is like mini maths and mini engineering. Some parents love Lego right? and their kids can have done like Lego, you know, out through the roof and others have never done any Lego. Right. Some love board games and they'll teach their kids because some board games is just random. Others, you, you figured out strategies, right? Um, whether there's strategies in Connect Four, there's strategies in Monopoly, and there's sure as hell are strategies in chess, right? And there's plenty of kids that you know, parents who like board games can play chess going into prep. So they understand this, right? Others, you know, sport, they've never held a ball in their life. Others have had every ball and they can kick a footy and mark a footy by the time they're going to prep, right? Who gets told they're good going into school? The kid that's done, you know, can read by themselves. 1% of kids can read by themselves according to the studies, and that's roughly in line with what I've personally found. Or the kid who's never done any reading, they've only had books read to them, right? Who gets told they're good at mathematics? The kid that's done, you know, hundreds of hours of Lego or the kid that's never done any Lego. So they've already done a massive quantity difference by the time most people think of as the starting point. And so for better or worse, every thought you have is a form of education. Every time you play with your children is a form of education. And for most parents, it isn't a well-rounded education for their their kids. And they're not even thinking of it as education. They just think of it as playing. It's like, I like these toys. They'll like these toys, you know? <laughs> and that's what it is, right? But for better or worse, already for many, many people, the quantity difference is quite material going into the start of school. So even if you're, for instance, in a high academic school, low academic school, you'll still see some children that are, for instance, of good at reading or good at numeracy or whatever, right? And then you think, ah, oh, they were born that way, you know? But actually, they were built that way. And it is the sum outcome, just like dancing that you used or, or playing the violin. It's like, mm -hmm. if you've never played the violin before, guess who's going to be bad at it? If you've done 100 hours, guess who's going to be better at violin than the person who's not done zero, who's done zero hours? Yeah, so I think all of, uh, like, the message that your set point when you come into school is not zero because yeah. you've had you know five odd years to get a head start on you know particular aspect whether you said numeracy literacy sports social etc yeah. um and i agree with that because i've seen the the output or the effects of my children spending x amount of time pursuing one particular um you know activity and how that has directly led into uh you know their ability to apply that in certain aspects of school what i want to challenge Can you that give me an example oh sorry no, don't worry keep going yeah well i mean like the example there is lego right because my eldest is like freaking is like just blows me out of the water when it comes to lego like i, really, I used to activity is really good james sends me videos sometimes of the stuff his children do please send more it's so it's lovely <laughs> yes um like i thought i liked lego i thought i was a you know, mega <laughs> but like I honestly like i i feel like the true spirit of lego is to take a completely unstructured pile of random pieces and to create your own world of um you know no different like lego can be many things but go on yeah. yeah yeah and i never did that i just followed the instruction manual like, yeah i know oh, that this piece goes here this piece goes here and then i put it up on the shelf and then i admire it for the next you know however many years whereas what i see um my eldest Izzy do is she'll make the the piece like Duncan gave her a car uh, some months ago and she built that car you know 
in an afternoon. But then the next time I saw it, it was half dismantled. And it had, you know, things like a little glove box added where she could put her person's makeup. And it had and the, the, the internal combustion engine taken out because she wanted an electric engine. Mm. And so all of these, it starts to change over time. And then suddenly it's completely disappeared and it's been put into all of these different pieces. And so mm. that didn't just happen the first time she played Lego. That happened over hours and hours and hours of play. You can see her starting to piece things together literally in her mind that you know, I can use these pieces in different ways the way I want to. And that was what I thought was from a very long tail or well, long term, um, you know, series of play of Lego. It wasn't just embedded. But what I wanted, to, what I'm getting to here is I noticed that there is an inherent aspect of Izzy wanting to play with Lego. Whereas, for example, my other daughter, Chloe, has little to no interest. No matter how many times I sit down with her on the on the floor and we get the, the bigger Duplo blocks, and I'm like, hey, look at this, this is pretty cool. She might think it's like interesting, but then she'll like stack all the pieces on one and then say it's a wand, and then she'll run off. It's like, look at me, I've got a wand, and then that's it. And so I guess what I'm trying to distinguish here is that I don't just... I don't dispute the notion that if I put Chloe in enough situations where she spent as much time as Izzy did playing Lego, that she would probably get a lot further along than where she is now. But I definitely feel that there is an inherent aspect of her own internal drive pursuing something that she has a innate interest in mm. differs the outcome, if that would be. Yeah. Uh, well, to do two things, you said two things in here. So, so the first is like, well, so is it fair to say that so you've got two two daughters, Izzy and Chloe? Uh, Izzy being the older one, I understand like eight and um, five, or has there been a birthday recently? And so has the quantity of Lego at the same age. So let's just take when Izzy was five, you know, the same age as Chloe is now. The quantity of Lego that she would have done is materially more than the quantity of Lego that Chloe has done. Is that reasonable? It, yes, it's reasonable. I just want to quickly say that so, they were both introduced to Lego at the same age, around yeah. about three. And so, the, it, yep. so cool. And so, for instance, is Izzy um, good at maths at school or relatively strong at mathematics at school? I think I think she is. Like, but know, I mean, you, there'll be the grades from school. Like, is she doing well at, at maths? Yeah, yes, yeah. doing well. So there is a strong ass correlation between Lego and this. So that doesn't surprise me in the slightest, right? And for whatever reason, so, so you like you know, you and I like Lego growing up, and I remember this. Um, I don't know why. Um, you would get whatever, like, I remember there was like, I think there's a helicopter one. Um, was there a helicopter one that you, you did? Yeah. 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 And so you would put them and put them on the shelf. And I don't know if this is because, because you, you know, this is a, this is a fancy one, right? Uh, and then, you know, I don't know if your parents were like, oh, well, you know, you, you can't just break it immediately. But I never kept anything. I just broke them immediately and then built something I wanted to. And I got more interested in the Lego techniques side and the engineering and trying to figure out how to make the, the gears and the cogs do things, right? And so me playing with Legos, I, I spent hours and hours and hours. Like I would wake up before school and play Lego and then mum would come in and I'd done two hours of Lego playing and trying to build all these like effectively machines that could do things, right? And so this is not just, it's a different type of time. So if you're just following the instruction set, which is what some people's is, that's different to you making your own instruction sets, right? Um, and you and I had time spent differently on Lego, right? Um, yep. And that's a form of creativity. And you can do that with arts and crafts or whatever. So some, as an example, people with cooking, some people are only following the recipe and some people are making their own recipe, right? And so in different areas, you can, you can get this. Um, so what would I say for this? Um, and this is again, looking through things. So I think a really good example are teachers. So this is one sort of stack. They'll use Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So the first level is, you need to be feeling safe. So how good are teachers at behavior management? And so that's a sort of universal skill. And you know, I've been lucky to go to the school and you follow the same class, so like 7A, and they go from teacher one to teacher two, from like whatever, the science teacher to the English teacher to the you know humanities teacher. And there is well-behaved, you know, positive sum, community, and then they know that this teacher doesn't, so they're out of control kids, right? Next class, right? So, so this is not like, so, so the, the, the individual quality of behavior management of teachers varies massively. So that's level one. Then level two is relationship. You know, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care, Teddy Roosevelt. 
So some teachers are bloody good at building relationships with kids and some teachers are not. This is to me a learned skill um, and is very important. Um, so level one behavior management, level two relationship, level three motivation. So some parts that people will have is like, I believe that I can grow, you know, blah, blah, you know, as example. Um, so growth mindset is, uh, I think, something that can and should be doing. And then level four is like learning. So how are you teaching, for instance, mathematics? Are you doing inquiry-based learning or are you doing, you know, constructivist direct instruction approach? And even if inside a direct instruction approach, what examples are you picking? How are you explaining it, right? And for a lot of people, they think of teaching as just that final one. How do you explain maths as an example? Um, and what people are able to do, teachers, so like, is there an innate interest like in Izzy uh, uh, for um, Lego uh, over, say, Chloe? Um, they are able, the good teachers, to affect massive outcome changes in classrooms on average. It doesn't mean that they've got the same starting point if you're in year seven or if you're in prep you know, or foundation, which is you know kindergarten for the US, like five-year-old. They're not coming in starting starting point, right? But you can affect this. So again, you may not be the, the strongest student in the class for whatever else it is, i.e. have done the most upgrades to that point, but you can do this. So this is one of the things where they do look at, which I do think the studies are good. The hobbies that people have, which is sort of interests, there's no examples of heritability of this. So your, for instance, daughters, you know, this it's not like, okay, well, Izzy likes Lego, therefore her children in the future like Lego or whatever, right? And both, you know, you and, and, and you know, Elise like Lego, obviously your, your kid's gonna love Lego, right? And so part of this is like, well, you weren't born a little lawyer or a little teacher or a little F1 driver, you're born a little hunter-gatherer. What do we have here? Another hunter-gatherer, another hunter-gatherer, another hunter-gatherer, right? Um, because the jobs that we have today didn't exist for most people 100 years ago, let alone, and they say you can, someone's biologically indifferent from 10,000 or 20,000 years ago. So, you know, what we were doing 20,000 years ago has almost nothing to do with what you're doing today. So I would say that there isn't an innate built-in thing. Like, for instance, skin color, yes, you know, but, you know, okay, you're going to like Lego or not, no. And, and then also the data from that doesn't support that. Mm. So it's... It's true that, you know, there's a lot of the things that we do are not representative of the world that we are biologically born into, right? So we've evolved to be hunter-gatherers and that's more or less what our minds have kind of, like, default set itself as when we come out of the womb. But I still, I still think that there are interests that you pick up and I know you can definitely create a link between the, you know, the feeling one gets when they have accomplished something and whatever activity you're doing in the first place. So I think whether you were alluding to it, but like there are teachers who can create the desired outcome a child wants from doing well in mathematics, even though they might not inherently enjoy mathematics. But when you see behavioral aspects, like for me, it's like, what do they do when you leave them alone? And what do they want to spend their time with? If it's not, you know, <laughs> asking them to watch TV or, play Mario Kart, if, you know, how do they create the, the, or how do they occupy the time when they're bored? And I see two very, very different approaches. I see, you know, if you go into a room and create her own world out of either her dolls or her Lego toys, whereas Chloe is very, um, it's very physical. Like she will either start running or she'll start dancing. Mm. And that to me, like what I'm seeing in that is, well, sure, there's, a, there's an argument to be made that it's not necessarily a blank slate, but there was something that happened where they got an instant reward, whether that was personal gratification or acknowledgement or something, when they did that first activity. Like maybe Izzy managed to build something with her first Lego set in a way that gave her a reward response that then led her to being more interested in that pursuit. And maybe Chloe did something the first time she started dancing, like maybe the first dance she did, like she got a like positive reaction from one of her parents. And so she wanted to keep doing that. But from, from what I observe is I see there being, I don't know what other way to describe it other than an innate interest or curiosity or form of cognitive not cognitive, mental ability in certain areas. Mm. And I don't 
discount the fact that if Izzy wanted to be a great dancer, she could if she put in the hours. If Chloe wanted to be amazing at Lego, she could if she wanted if she put in the hours. Yeah. But I feel I feel like that there is something else underneath that that is inherently driving them in these particular areas. So I don't want to make the mistake of saying, well, Izzy is limited because she doesn't have the same interest in dancing as Chloe does. But I do think that there is something to be said about what is driving you internally versus what culturally we can set people up for to ensure that they can have limitless upside potential. There are two examples that I'll use for this. Um, one is the sort of academic pursuits. So, you know, you're not normally getting electives at school and it depends on the different country systems until, like, you know, year nine, you know, grade nine, grade 10 sort of thing, right? Um, and the other is friends, right? So hopefully you have friends um, and a lot of, you know, children will have like a best friend, right? And you'll see that those best friends often have very similar interests and they affect each other. Um, so for instance, it's often a sort of turn like, you know, going to school, um, you know, part of best friends is, you know, partially a downside removal. If you're in a bad place or whatever, they can come and help you, but it's also adding upside, you know, having fun, you know, doing things right. And so it's like a social sort of side that, you know, you know, being lonely. So the people that um, um, work together the best, you know, they outdid the people that didn't work together the best. So you actually, if you're by yourself, your emotions, your hormones, um, so in your body aren't good, right? So you'll see that some of the interests that your children and you remember like me and you had aligned a lot. So your, your best friend's interests and your interests are often very similar, right? And when you hang out, you're doing things you both like. Now, there might be things that you like that they don't like, which you do when they're not around, right? But effectively, people influence each other, right? So it wasn't like, oh, well, the kids who are best friends are the two that both like dancing. And if you don't like dancing, we're not friends, you know? Um, that affects it, right? So, um, but then the other side is, can they teach people things, you know, literacy? Like, yeah. You're not like born as, can they teach people numeracy? Like, yeah, right? Um, and is there ways that are better? So quality? Yes. I, I don't think anyone's going to do this. But for better or worse, the major differences, because like the quality differences across schools, I think, are not that strong when you look at it. Um, but the quantity <laughs> that, that at an entire school level, that is a massive average difference, right? Um, and so to me, um, again, if you look at this, like, oh, look at the hobbies that people are like, you know? None of them existed 200 years ago. None, right? Like there wasn't Lego, right? There weren't, you know, whatever else it is, computer games, you know, the sports that we do now. They didn't really exist, right? You know, hunter gatherings. And so these things aren't necessarily innately in there. So is there something new that you found that you're interested in? Like, yeah. And you're like, you know, whatever else it is. And so to me, um, you can normally, like they say, the more you know about something, the more interesting it is. If you don't know anything about whatever, AFL or, you know, Lego, it's pretty boring. But then if you know something like easy, like you, you could find ways to study these. So what some person think is interesting, like, I don't know, like I don't personally find cooking interesting, right? But I think that it could be interesting if I spent the time to learn how to hopefully be a better cook and all these things, right? And so to me, um, yeah, there are certain things like whatever, extroversion, uh, you know, neuroticism, contentious, conscientiousness, where I do think there is a reasonable thing that there is some heritability. Um, but for things like work ethic, you know, put here, you know, attachment styles, you know, interests, those things, um, are hard to like, ah, well, you know, they're almost all built. Yeah, I, 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 I feel very strongly that making the case for you having a set point in life. So um, what, what, um, what Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris were using one of their debates very, very early on was what they call metaphorical truths. And the metaphorical truth is that irrespective of its grounding in fact, it's beneficial that you believe it. And so what Sam Harris used as an example, well, the, the, the topic was religion. And so the case was being made that irrespective of its validity, believing in religion was beneficial for mankind. Um, whether or not you believe you agree with that, um, that was the case that was being, make, being made. And so Sam Harris was using the case of handling a weapon and that 
you treat the weapon as if it's loaded. Like you check it, you, 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 you click it, you take out the chamber, all of that kind of stuff. But the aspect of a metaphorical truth here being it doesn't matter whether it is grounded in fact or not, what they have shown that if you believe it, it is beneficial for you. The other one is that the people who believe that porcupines can shoot their quills. You, you, they can't shoot their quills, but because people believe that, they stay away from them, therefore they get injured less. And so um, I guess what I'm coming back to is this idea of is you don't have to um, show the data on what is heritable versus not inheritable, but to simply believe that you have a mind that you can build a, you know, a skill set or a mental level or mental ability that you can cultivate, that you can improve, that you can practice that, that you can um, increase over time. I, I think that is a mental, that is a metaphorical truth that has shown itself to be beneficial to have. And I think that's probably just another way of saying growth mindset. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to me, look around at the world. Um, look at, so like as an example, um, English is the largest language. Um, they don't actually know how many words are in there, but people say sort of 750,000. And a thousand years ago, there were 50,000 words. And you sort of know this, they create all these words like FOMO or whatever else it is, right? That didn't exist before, right? Um, and so you can't think of a thought where you don't have the word. So the amount of feelings you have increases with the amount of words that you have. If you get like schadenfreude, you have a new feeling, right? Um, and then they go back further and it's like, ah, okay. And so then they went and they found, you know, societies where there was a small number of people living on an island. And I've forgotten the number of words, like, you know, um, you have to cook or whatever, you know, and, they, and, the, and the number of words they had was like 10,000 or something. And so when you look at this, it's like we were hunter-gatherers for all the time, right? And then some people got to agrarian societies, right? And then they got from agrarian, you know, to the industrial revolution or whatever, right? Um, and so it's like, ah, okay, well, what people do today, like 99% of the jobs did not exist 200 years ago. Like they just didn't exist, right? Um, and so it's like, people can learn things. Like it's like, <laughs> and knowledge is like, so this is this, you know, um, what's his name? Naval Ravikant, that humans are universal understanding machines. And the thing that should blow your mind is that nothing can blow your mind that we are able to understand things. If aliens came along and landed, you know, and then they had technology that we don't have, and presumably they did, because if they get here right now, we don't have the technology to go visit other you know, planets yet. We could give this technology trade and be like, hey, or and if, they hope, if they wanted to, you know, but like we could understand what they've done, right? Um, and so it's like, uh, at a sort of first principles level from what you were sort of saying there, it's like, have humans, been able to create knowledge and that knowledge has been able to turn into like i'm living in an apartment you know this tree was never going to turn into this apartment it wasn't like it's was going to naturally grow you know this is, you know sort of evolution and ah and the people that have built this or come up with this like you know if i spent the time to try to think about how do i know how to build this no you know could i learn how to build this i think so right it would take a while i'm not saying i necessarily be very good at it i'd start off crap you know to get good at you have to do the, the sum of the, the upgrades and so I was like, ah, okay. So people can learn things they've never been before. The new knowledge can be created. And not just, there's like, you know, 1% of people that can create new knowledge. You've hopefully created some new thoughts about something. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, you know um, I don't know, how to play with Lego is easy, you know, or whether it's how to think about making mathematics resources, in short, which I think we've done at Ed Roller, right? Or James, you know, with marketing or whatever else it is, right? And so it's like, ah, so you can make new thoughts too. You can, you can invent things effectively. So to me, um, we should be telling people um, that everything that they see, that they look around at, was built by others, pioneers, you know, innovators, entrepreneurs. And you too can be a pioneer, innovator, entrepreneur. Um, so to me, and that's like build new knowledge it hasn't been before. And so it's like, ah, and I think most people are like, ah, they've kind of implicitly understood this. But then I think people also take, well, they're smart and dumb and you're born and that's just your lot in life. Um, and I think that the data doesn't prove that out. Um, and, you know, and the main thing here is that quantity is, is easily measurable and is massively different <laughs> across different people. Um, and that, that explains 
the entirety, basically, of the differences. Yeah. All right, Duncan, coming up to the hour now. So I think it's summary time. Summary time. <laughs> and then I was going to go back to bedtime. But bedtime. <laughs> no coffee today at all. I've, I've broken over one because I want to go nap. I'm going to put all the blinds down to make it dark. <laughs> do some work and then we're going to like... <laughs> all right so I'll, I'll um I'll, I'll take a wild swing at it first so the, uh, the start of this conversation was really trying to make a distinction between what we consider to be intelligence versus IQ versus G factor and while intelligence at a very very general uh understanding is one's ability to understand and solve problems. IQ and G factors are more tools of measurement that have been created to try and help either determine an individual's level of intelligence compared to the population or provide a measurement on how smart or unintelligible one person is. And so we then went on to trying to create a coherent distinction of what does it mean to have inheritable versus non-inheritable traits. And Duncan's point was, you believe, if I understand this, that intelligence doesn't necessarily have to be in, entirely inherited. In fact, you believe that there is 0% for the majority of us, there are exceptions, but for the majority of us, it, it can have, it can, be, yeah. it, it can be effectively irrelevant. And that is true applying quality and quantity of time to leveling yourself up in any given field this one being you know academic or intelligible <laughs> fields so i think for me like the 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 aspect that you can you can build your mind in almost any area is is something that i feel you know very strongly about I see it in not only myself when I continue to learn things out of either pure interest or because I want to upskill myself in a particular area for work, but I see it in my children as well. Um, I believe that, yes, if you there is a difference in how you can generate a certain result if you have quality education, re access to educational tools, be it teachers, be it resources, be it whatever, and you can get very different outcomes based on the amount of time that you apply to something as well. So, yeah, I think you might have a set point, but that over time can become redundant or redundant mm. as, as long as you are applying your own set of inputs that should, I would say, completely override, you know, whatever disadvantage or advantage you originally have. Yeah, so, so there are... Um... So are things that are heritable. So for instance, height is like 80 to 90% heritable. You've got tall parents, you're likely to be tall. So at that time, you know, nutrition, muscle fibers or whatever. So if you've got someone who's like, I don't know, there's talk about slow switch fibers or fast switch fibers, uh, more well-built, you know, you said it's in that, that their likelihood of this. And they say that's like 50 to 70%. Um, but then um, there are other things that people think are heritable, like intelligence, and that person's a genius, like, you know, or whatever else it is. And I think that when you look through this, so, so as an example, like child prodigies, they've all done an extraordinary amount of work in whatever area it is, whether it's dancing that you talked about, whether it's art, whether it's, you know, physics. So they would have done sometimes, and there's a, an interesting ABC program on this, I think called literally child prodigies. Um, and it's like, yeah, this kid who's really good at science, all they do all day is science, that's it, right? You know, and if you look at the average kid that's seven years old, they don't do f all science, and so the quantity of the difference that they might have done ten thousand hours, right? You know, and the other kid's done ten hours, and I'm like, maybe there'll be a difference, you know. <laughs> so to me, um, quantity, you know, your mind is the sum of the upgrades, which is quantity times quality. So a quote smart person, which it wasn't like, has done lots of upgrades, and a quote dumb person has not done many upgrades. And that applies in sport, Lego creativity, you know, literacy, numeracy. Um, and so is there uh, measurable differences, for instance? So, so is there a difference in IQ, which is the main way that people measure intelligence between the income areas? Yes, there is, right? Is there also a big difference in the quantity? For those yes, there is. Are there people 
that, for instance, come with high, you know, quantity, you know, for instance, East Asian immigrants, and do they get to the top quartile, you know, yeah, often, right, you know? <laughs> and so to me, um, there is uh, a correlation um, to, to IQ, um, which I don't think is a very good test, I think it's very, very teachable, um, which is explainable through quantity very easily. And I don't see that as being talked about uh, much, which, um, but I don't see any really serious people in education talking about the heritability. <laughs> it's only outside in, in things like Lex Fridman and, and Sam Harris or whatever. Um, and so to me, I think that's hopefully quite a um, motivating thing. Um, like if you've got children, it's like, well, I hope that they were born smart. And it's like, if you do the work, like, you know, if you don't work, nothing will. Um, and so work ethic, um, I think, is one of the best things that my parents um, gave to me. Um, and I think that you, if you are a parent or a teacher, should be hoping to instill a good work ethic in your children or pupils. All right, we got through, James, and I was so tired and I really didn't want to do this. Bobby's had enough too, I think. Cool. Bobby! Oh, bye. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Just be just saying. Just take it. Bye.